previously on Maverick. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened. From what we can tell, Iran has the fastest growing church in the world. What was once almost entirely Muslim is becoming a country with more Christians than we can count. This is a place where people are turning away from Islam in remarkable numbers. And uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say uh, certainly tens of thousands, quite possibly hundreds of thousands of Iranians with Islam behind them are now boldly following Jesus Christ and sharing their faith with their friends and families and neighbors. You're listening to Maverick, and today we're headed to the Persian region to find out what is causing this massive shift in Iran. Because while it may seem like it's happening out of nowhere, it's actually been a long time coming. Yeah, my name is Mohammed Faridi. I was born and raised in Iran. Come from a religious family and went to mosque since I remember to do my prayers and tried to keep the Sharia of Islam as best as my ability. And as Shia Muslims, we have ways of punishing ourselves and self-flagellating and paying the penance for our sins. So I did a lot of that. I have beaten myself severely by chains, by knives by sword to my head and um, memorized many chapters of the Quran. However, the more I ran toward the Islamic God, it seems that the further he was from me, the more Islamic I became, the more laws I followed, the more it felt like it is emptier and emptier. So I searched for the answers, so I went to the most known scholars and the clergies of the Islamic Sharias. And I would ask them, what's, what's my problem? And how do I feel God? How do I know I'm pleasing to Him? How do I know I'm being accepted? And I have earned the paradise. And those clergies, those scholars, those people in high places, they would say, um, I'm not worthy yet. I need to do more. And all of that brought more hopelessness to my situation. Then um, when I heard the gospel uh, for the first time through this friend, the way he explained it, all the cutting, all the beating, all the self-punishment that I brought upon myself, all the religious duties that I'd done and it wasn't helping, none of that was working. And he said, it's already finished. It is already paid. The price that you're paying, it's already paid. And death of Jesus has settled the bill, has settled the debt. And uh, when I heard that, the blood was shed for my sake. That's the best thing I've ever heard. So that simple message brought me to my knees and 
I begged to know Jesus and I begged to be accepted in the Beloved, to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And that's what happened. In the beginning of my conversion, I thought, it's just a few of us. I thought, man, <laughs> there's two or three of former Muslims uh, or people like me that they have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But I realized, man, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of us from all walks of life. We had educated, uneducated, we had old and young, we had all sort of people that left Islam for Christianity. They were Christians. And I realized there's a lot of us. I just didn't know about it. What Mohammed didn't know at the time was that he had just become part of one of the fastest growing underground churches in the world. And to understand how a strictly Islamic country could be home to such a massive movement, we're gonna look at it in the form of a timeline. Starting all the way back in the 1500s. Back then there was this very ambitious Shah who ruled in Iran. He wanted to build a new capital city in Isfahan and in order to do that, he brought in skilled architects from the neighboring country of Armenia. Now, Armenia is a Christian country. In fact, it was the first nation in the world to declare Christianity as its national religion. And that typically wouldn't make for good relations between themselves and their Muslim neighbors in Iran. But these Armenian architects did such a good job of building this new city that the Shah gave them the right to stay in Iran and settle in Isfahan. So that was in the 1500s. Fast forward a few hundred years to 1915. In 1915, World War I was underway. The Ottoman Empire was afraid that invading troops would convince the Armenians living in Armenia to fight against them. So in an effort to prevent that, the Turks began killing Armenians in a mass genocide. Between 1915 and 1916, somewhere around 1.2 million Armenians were killed. Those who survived fled to neighboring countries. And Iran was one of those countries that allowed them free access to come into the country. They never were assimilated into the Iranian majority population, which was Muslim. But because of their antiquity, they were seen as a people of the book. And because they had had good relations with uh, Iran from the 16th century, they, uh, they welcomed them in as people in need. Frankly, they were a refuge place for them where they were allowed to continue to practice their Armenian faith so long as they didn't bother the Muslim population. And that was the arrangement. So in Iran, to be Armenian meant you were a Christian, and to be Iranian meant you were a Muslim. Two religions tied to two separate cultures and two people groups who kept to themselves. In the decades that followed, Iran became more and more secular. And by the 1970s, they were experiencing quite a bit of freedom. People dressed how they wanted, pursued education that they wanted, and followed whatever religion they wanted. But then something happened in 1979 that changed all that. Well, anyone who's my age will remember in 1979, the world uh, was shaken up when the Ayatollah Khomeini, who had been in exile in Paris, um, was able to rouse his supporters in Iran to throw out the Shah of Iran. So the Ayatollah Khomeini came back to uh, Iran, he came back to power, uh, established an Islamic Republic and immediately began imposing 
uh, Sharia law, the Islamic law. Sharia means the way of Islam, and it's their standards for how a Muslim should worship, should live, should conduct himself or herself in every area of life. And these new rulers of Iran after 1979, they wanted Islam and Islamic prescriptions to govern every area of life. And it was a rather harsh regime that, uh, that took place, and that's what the people experienced under the Islamic Republic. The law of Iran went from a secular law to a Sharia law. This is Mohammed again. We heard from him in the beginning of this episode. The religion that they hold dear to their hearts, they thought this is the wonderful, perfect religion. They realized this is nothing but a 7th century barbaric Bedouin Arab religion. But how could they resist it? There was no way out. Every time they protested, every time there was uprising, they were mercilessly killed on the streets without any courts. And they call them that they are sowing discord and according to Islamic law is punishable by death. So they were uh, lining up people, shooting them, and then charged the family with the bullets that they shot those family members with. Christians who weren't killed on the spot were exiled from the country or thrown into jail. Many of them spent years waiting for a trial and hoping for release. One man named Mehdi Debaj spent 10 years being tortured with mock executions, beatings, and two years of solitary confinement. So many Iranians lost their lives without anyone ever hearing about it. And Mehdi Debaj would have been one of them if it weren't for the series of events that happened in 1994. At that time, the Iranian government denied using the death sentence for becoming a Christian. But behind closed doors, they had set an execution date for Mehdi. At one point, this information leaked out of the prison system, and it came to the attention of the bishop of the Assemblies of God Church in Iran. His name was Bishop Haik Hovsepian. And Bishop Haik was told, you know, uh, you must not publicize this execution sentence of Mehdi Debaj. Don't publicize it outside of Iran because we're already facing sanctions. We don't want to have more bad publicity around the world. Bishop Hike said, you know, I cannot stay silent. Even though I'm from an Armenian background and he's from a Muslim background, he's my brother. And he began sending out, at that time, fax messages to churches all over the world, said, pray for Mehdi Debaj. Please write letters and protest this death sentence that he's been given. And Bishop Hike was told, uh, uh, you know, you, you have put your hand over the hole of the snake in doing this. But it worked. With pressure from the global church and all the bad press, the government decided to release Mehdi Debaj. And on January 16, 1994, he became a free man. Three days later, Bishop Hike went missing. Police said they knew nothing, but rumors started cropping up of a freshly buried body in an unmarked grave. Ten days after he went missing, Bishop Hike's body was exhumed. He had been stabbed 27 times. And at his funeral, thousands of Iranians, both Christian and Muslim, turned out for the funeral, even though it was in the pouring rain. And Mehdi Debaj got up and spoke. He said, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, everyone abandoned him. But there was one person in the crowd who knew that Jesus had died for him, and that one person was Barabbas. 
He said, when Haikov Sepian was killed, I knew that he died for me. Mehdi Dabaj spent the next several months sharing his story everywhere he could. But eventually, he too went missing. In July of 1994, he was found stabbed to death in a park in Tehran. And there are two reasons why the deaths of these men were so important. The first is that Mehdi was a former Muslim, and Bishop Haik was an Armenian. Two men from two different people groups who were supposed to keep to themselves. But they treated each other like brothers. And that started to blur the lines between the Armenian and Iranian people. And in order to understand the second reason why these murders were so significant, we need to understand what makes Iran such a unique country even within the Islamic world. One of the distinctives of Islam in Iran is that it's not uh, the traditional Sunni Islam or Orthodox Islam that's found over most of the uh, Islamic world. Almost 90% of Muslims around the world call themselves Sunni Muslims. Instead, in Iran, you've got something of an anomaly that the people follow what's called Shiite Islam. And that means that they draw their identity or their distinctiveness from Ali, the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, who was killed in the conflict over who would be the next caliph, the next leader of the Muslim people. Well, likewise, Ali's two sons, Hassan and Hussein, were killed in battle in that struggle over who would be the next leader of the Muslim people. Many Iranians, many Shiites see them as martyrs, and they commemorate their martyrdom every year in their calendar. And it's because of that lineage that Iranian Muslims have a special sort of affinity for those who were martyred for their faith. So the story of these two men added fuel to a fire that was already simmering across the country. They revered the martyr who laid down his life for his people. And they saw in both Bishop Hike and in Mehdi Dibaj, two men who had found something that was worth dying for. And what the Iranian government didn't realize is that something worth dying for is more compelling than something worth killing for. So as the Iranian people watched persecution break out in the name of Islam, it only pushed them further away from it. When persecution comes, the Christianity grows everywhere. This is Nahid. She's from Iran, where she and her family spent time in jail before being kicked out of the country. Today, she lives in the U.S. and is the president of the Iranian Bible Society. Many people, when they went to jail, they start evangelizing. They are not quiet there, too. And when they are coming out or from the jail, they are saying, God is using us in jail. They are not afraid of saying, we are Christian, and they are not denying their faith. So God is using that for other people to see there is a difference between Jesus and others. Nahid knows firsthand how far the Iranian government is willing to go in order to snuff out Christianity. But she also knows how futile those efforts are when God is moving. They are shutting down the Bible Society, uh, killing people, shutting down all the Persian-speaking building churches. We don't have any inside the country. All of them, the government shut them down. And they tell, if there is no building churches, churches is done. No Bible society, no Bible anymore. But I can say, no one can put chain on the word of God. 
and there is more than hundreds of house churches in Tehran or thousands, thousands house churches inside the country. They are worshipping God. So government was not able to do so. As much as they are trying to control it, to shut it down, the Christianity in Iran growing more and more. And while many Iranians were being drawn to Jesus through the sacrifice of persecuted believers, there was also another, more secret way that Christianity was infiltrating the country. Because people and church buildings and Bibles are pretty easy to find and do away with. But one thing that was incredibly hard for the government to regulate was this new innovation called the World Wide Web. Well, media today, you know, can't be limited by borders. Even though countries are trying to do it, there are everything from scripture portions and New Testaments that are downloaded from the internet to being smuggled in on micro SD chips. There are podcasts through virtual private networks. People inside the country are able to get onto the internet even though it's blocked by the government. And when a country full of people are disillusioned with the Islam they're experiencing, they're gonna go looking for an alternative. And what better place to look for anything than on the internet? We have five satellite TVs, which they are 24 hours, seven days a week. They are evangelizing, they are teaching, and they are talking about Jesus Christ. We have a radio, Radio Mujde. It's again, seven days a week, 24 hours uh, broadcasting. Social media. Iranian, they are well-educated and computer-savvy. Old people, they have their, even old lady in uh, villages, they have their iPhone or their phone in their hands and looking for news. And they are eager to find new things. God using social media, God using TV satellite ministries, radio ministries, All this, God is using that. So one of the Iranian Muslim background believers that I was able to interview was Layla. Layla was a vivacious 34-year-old mother of three, just a beautiful young woman, young mother. And I sat with her husband and her on the couch, and she just opened up and started telling me her story of how she had come to faith in Christ. She talked for about an hour and a half. I took page after page of notes. But she talked about watching uh, Pastor Hormoz Shariat's television program, satellite TV program called God is Love. And she said uh, every time she would have questions about Christianity or about Islam, she would get the next episode of Pastor Hormoz's program and it would answer the question that she had been wrestling with that week. And it was so uncanny that she finally pulled her husband in and turned to him and said, okay, look, here's a question I have right now. She told him her question. Then she turned on Pastor Hormoz's program and he answered that very question. She said, something is going on here. She said she ended up recording and watching a hundred six hour programs of Brother Hormoz. Pastor Hormoz says there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of homes in Iran today where every Sunday they turn on their TV, 
gather around it, listen to the message, and worship together. Hundreds of tiny little house churches that are thriving because of what he calls the miracle of satellite TV. You know, Jesus talks about the fullness of time and that uh, when his time was not yet ready, he kept himself somewhat secretive. But when his time was, was ready, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And there's a sense in which this is the fullness of time for Iran. I think media ministry fits into this context of the fullness of time. It's not that media ministry alone is accomplishing the great awakening that's taking place in Iran today. It's the combination of media, of bold, courageous Iranian and Armenian missionaries who are sharing the gospel with their neighbors at great risk to life and to livelihood. It's a combination of the prayers of people around the world who are praying for Muslims to come to Christ, praying for Iranians. And uh, coupling all that together, we're seeing God work to get the gospel into the hearts and minds of Iranians. These Iranian movements remind me of the story of Joseph in the Bible. There's this incredible moment in Joseph's life where after many years of trials, he comes face to face with the people who made his life so difficult. And he says to them, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. When I picture these movements in Iran, Joseph's words feel like a banner over them because as the government seeks to destroy them and Islam looks to suffocate them, they know that there is another power at work among their people, that God is there moving, and he can take all those evil intentions and use them as a catalyst for good. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick Podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.